Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is a candidate for state representative in House District 12, Michelle Emmons. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. So before we start, I would like to remind our listeners and watchers where to find the podcast. The Spent the Rent Podcast official website is strpod.com. That is strpod.com. There you will find links to everything from YouTube to Spotify to Apple Podcasts and more. Subscribe wherever you consume the podcast, whether it's from your couch or your car. That website, again, is strpod.com. Also, shout out to my title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, and to all of our local 541 sponsors. To become a donor for as low as $5 a month, go to strpod.com. All right, Michelle Emmons, candidate for state representative in Oregon's 12th district. Your district is often referred to as the gateway to the Cascades. Can you tell me what area your district covers and why you decided to run for state representative? I sure can. It is the gateway to the Cascades because we're right on the edges of the urban areas and act as the uh, corridor for people to get out and enjoy their escapes in the great outdoors in the Cascade Mountains. Um, The district includes south and east uh, part of Eugene, kind of on the outskirts of the boundaries there, and goes all the way down I-5 to Cottage Grove, includes the North Umpqua National Forest, as well as the Highway 58 corridor um, through Pleasant Hill, Dexter, Lowell, and Oak Ridge areas. And then it kind of swings around Springfield and includes the McKinsey, Mohawk, and Marcola Valleys, wow. as yeah. well as Junction City, Coburg, and Cheshire. So um, a little tiny slice of the south part of Lynn County as well. And I am running because rural voices matter. And I think you had asked me, like, before we got started on this interview is, you know, what the heck does that mean? And why do I keep saying that? Well, I keep saying that because I feel like People who live in rural areas get stuck with this narrative. We're rednecks. We don't know what's good for us. We don't understand how politics work. We aren't educated. We're all right wings. And none of that is true. There are a lot of Democrats. There's a lot of moderate Republicans as well as non-affiliates in our district. People are very educated in our district. We have a ton of incredible volunteers who are bolstering our communities up because we don't have the same resources that urban areas have. And therefore, we have a lot of different kinds of challenges that when our legislation is filled with policies that have really great intentions, but they are written without rural voices being involved in how they're crafted, sometimes there's unintended consequences to our rural communities. And I'm hoping I can help make change on that front. 
Yeah. And that, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. We'll get more into that in a little bit, but also, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the conservatives in rural areas. I think people think that just because you're, uh, you know, conservative that you don't care about the environment and things like that. And that's just not true. You know, you know, so, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, so Oak Ridge and the surrounding areas, Oak Ridge specifically, but it's really, these last couple of weeks have been very difficult. Uh, can you tell me what your experience has been like over this past stretch dealing with fire evacuations, you know, and all that? Absolutely. So it's not a secret, but I do live uh, just up above the Oak Ridge Township. We are in the unincorporated area and we were at a level three evacuation kind of at the last minute. Some of the challenges that the uh, city faced were inclusive of the lack of communications infrastructure to support people getting those notifications that were outside of the city boundaries. So for instance, I live in the shadow of the cell phone tower. So I actually don't get cell phone service. So when the electricity goes down, I don't have any way to receive notifications on my phone. And the internet is down as well. So I can't get any information that way either. I ended up evacuating at about a level two when I got my notification. Um, And we also had great door knockers out with Lane County sheriffs and search and rescue folks, and also our local police departments, including Junction City, who came to help us out, Um, go around, knock on doors at level two, letting us know, especially in unincorporated areas, that that might be the last notice that we got before we would have to leave. Wow! So we packed up, we left at level two. And then just as I was getting down into the town where I had cell phone access, I got that level three notification. Um, Funny thing is I left a steak sitting on the counter. So I had to turn around and go back and make sure that we had our dinner for the evening. And when I did that, I drove back up High Prairie, which is where I live. And there was just processions of people leaving town. And many officers were out with their sirens on top, knocking on doors at the last minute, just ensuring that people got the message that we were at a level three evacuation. I mean, I can't imagine that job because we're talking about a rural community where the driveways are probably really long, you know, like it's just, it's, it's not city blocks where it's just like one apartment, next apartment, next apartment, next apartment there. Everything is built different, you know? So, wow, what an undertaking. My partner works for Lane County and she uh, was telling me some of the unsung heroes of this. I want to give a shout out to uh, Heather Buck, County Commissioner Heather Buck for the hard work that she's doing. There's a ton. I'm going to give you a chance to mention a few, but you know, with the McKenzie fires, it was super near and dear to my heart because my boys, my stepsons, their dad lives upriver. So when I came into the picture, I met a lot of the people from the McKenzie community and I saw the devastation firsthand from people, you know, that I really care about. So this is no longer what it was when we were kids. I would, I mean, actually until 2019, I'd go camping, you'd wake up, you'd smell, you're like, hmm, smells like forest fire. And then 10 minutes later, you forget about it. Now it's like, Every single time there's a haze, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, it's just different. Yeah, you're just wondering, like, where's the wind going to blow next? So, <laughs> Yeah, so it's just a little bit different. But so I wanted to give you a chance. Who are some of the unsung heroes? Now, of course, there's not going to be a chance to mention everyone. But, but so who are some of the unsung heroes over this last stretch? And we're not out of the woods. I mean, we are still at an evacuation level. Uh, it's, it's basically like, you know, be ready kind of thing. We actually went down to, yeah, we're at a, we're at a level one. A well, level one, we're right. At a but full it's, a, level it's at a be one ready. Yeah. yeah, be vigilant. Yeah, so we are being vigilant. But um, first of all, I just want to say there's a lot of just community volunteers that are part of smaller groups, uh, organized groups within the city that 
come out and help out in times of emergency or in times of crisis. And so I can't even possibly name all the numerous volunteers and community members around that are incredibly helpful in times of need. Um, and we have a couple of community-based organizations, such as the Southern Willamette Forest Collaborative um, and Oak Ridge Air, that were extremely helpful in pre-planning um, when we were building emergency preparedness and response protocol prior to the fire happening. Um, the Forest Collaborative was involved in that with the city building out what an evacuation plan would look like, what kinds of resources would be available if and when we had to evacuate. Um, and then Oak Ridge Air was one of the unsung heroes, I guess you could say, um, that bolstered the transportation services for those who did not have access to vehicles, along with our local school, um, shout out to Rita Doland, who's our superintendent there, who ensured that we have access to the public school buses um, to help us also evacuate people who didn't have means for transportation. Yeah, was there a, a, a place to go kind of put in place? Where was that at? You know, like I know that when the McKenzie fire it was at Thurston High School, was there a place to go for this or... Well, I mean, there were buses, there were central points in town, like the industrial park where the buses were, where people could go to uh, make sure that they had that transportation. But as far as like once people left town, um, there was notification that people could bring their livestock out to the Lane County Fairgrounds. And many folks with livestock left early. They left at that level two evacuation notice. And so... Um, the folks that were getting those messages made sure that they got out early enough um, to get their pets and their animals where they needed to be. And then there was also, I think, um, a spot that was at LCC uh, where folks were camping out as well. That's, this is exactly why when, what your campaign's all about, like the rural, life, rural voices matter. This is why, is because people are unaware of just the reality that people, I mean, like you just said, livestock. Like people are like, I got chickens, I got, I got horses, I got cows, you know, and people don't understand that. Don't well, understand. I mean, think about it. Uh, if you are in the urban areas of the Willamette That's what I'm Valley, right. Willamette Valley has 70% or well, probably more like 73 to 75% of our whole state's population lives on the Willamette River watershed, right? Right. And so our communities are upriver. We are like the caretakers of the headwaters of the Willamette River. Right. So our communities and our district are really uh, important for water integrity. Um, and then, you know, our communities in Junction City, uh, Coburg, and some of the surrounding farmlands, Pleasant Hill, Dexter, those areas are also critical to food security. And when we're wanting things like organic food or food that's grown local so that it isn't traveling from far away and it has more nutritional value to it, well, those are coming from our local farms. And so that is a big piece of the puzzle also as far as what the health looks like for our urban areas because indeed we are valuing what's going on in our rural counties. Yeah, absolutely. and. You know, there, I don't know. There's, it's really important for a position like like you're running for that you would have relationships with people like that, like people in farming, people in, in the different areas, you know. And so it's it's important that, that uh, someone has spent a lot of time in that kind of community. Uh, one of the – okay, let, so let's talk a little more in depth. I, I want to have you elaborate, uh, elaborate a little bit on Rural Voices Matter. You had mentioned it at the beginning, but how did you come up with this slogan and why is it just so vital to your campaign? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm not running a campaign so I can speak for people. I'm running a campaign so I can speak with my constituents' voices. So when I say rural voices matter, not only am I talking about the things that we just mentioned around water integrity and food security and, and all of those things, but I'm also talking about that the people who live in our district, they deserve a seat at the table. They deserve a space to speak from their hearts about the things that are most important to them without judgment or without somebody putting some narrative on them because they have an R or a D in front of their name or an NA, which people sometimes translate into, oh, they just don't care. Um, we all care. And um, when I say rural voices matter, um, I'm talking about the way that rural people come together regardless of what their political hat is. Um, and we come together in times of crisis and in times of need. We hold hands, we lift each other up, and we help each other out. Yeah, you see a lot of that, like I said, at the McKenzie, <laughs> it cracks me up. This guy told me that they're, he calls themselves dreadnecks. <laughs> and I was like, what's a dreadneck? And he's like, it's a hippie with a gun. No, no but uh, uh, when you go to the sporting events, and I'm sure that this is the same for all of the communities that you mentioned that you would cover, is that you see people like one is wearing like head to toe Cabela's gear and the next dude is wearing tie dye, you know, and everyone comes together. And it's like, and that's the beauty of, of, you know, high school sports and those kind of small town things is that uh, you really get to see that, you know? Well, I mean, think about it. We just don't have the capacity or the financial resources that urban centers have. And sure. so our communities are really reliant upon the people who live there right. in order to keep our, our network, to keep our, our towns alive, right? Yeah. And I think the McKinsey and what happened with the Holiday Farm Fire is absolutely a, a wonderful role model. Um, you really see neighbors helping neighbors, locals for locals there, coming together, working on grants, working on lifting each other up and making sure that they have the resources to build their homes or take care of their environment, the restoration processes that are happening out there. Sure, there's, there's organizations that are instrumental in making that happen, but without the community engagement, nothing moves forward in a rural community. Right. So let's talk about some issues. Uh, the first issue is probably, you know, leading up to this election nationwide, I think everybody was, it's the economy, it's the, it's the economy, stupid. You know, it's like the age old saying, you know, uh, you know, in, it is vital to build a strong community-based local economy through workplace innovation and education. Can you tell me about what your vision is in these areas? Sure. Well, I think that schools are like a heartbeat in rural towns. A lot of times schools also serve as community centers for other programming outside of just schools that are happening there. So infrastructure is really important to the community. Um, and as far as career and workforce development goes, it really does start uh, in the schools where kids learn about skills to help them move forward and become contributing adults in their communities. Um, they learn about volunteer opportunities as well as the basics that we expect to get out of an education. But they're also shaping themselves, they're creating an identity for themselves, and they're figuring out what they want to do when they move forward. And so in the school, um, having a career and technical educational credits is important for 
um, middle high school development to figure out and try some things that um, they might be interested in doing once they get out of school. Um, we also have the ability to take college credits while we're in schools to kind of help kids get a little bit further ahead by the time they're ready to make a decision about whether or not they want to go to college and what focus areas uh, they want to continue to move forward with or not. And also, I think having um, some of those abilities to work on uh, career-focused educational uh, components um, allows kids to um, figure out whether college is really where they want to go and what they want to do. Sure. Um, we need trade schools. Right. Um, we need other types of, of, of workforce training and availability so the kids aren't pigeonholed into student loan debt. Um, and also, there are, you know, there's some great opportunities in specific um, economic uh, factors such as forestry and farming and agriculture, um, where if schools have programs that can help high schoolers learn about those things ahead of time, um, that maybe we can get them into job training and eventually jobs to help keep them in our communities. Yeah, I want to mention... Uh, a good friend of mine, Anthony Reed, you may be seeing him on, on your TV sets and on YouTube on every commercial break, <laughs> that uh, he was recently in a commercial for Val Hoyle and who's running for Congress and that, you know, she was labor secretary and he is a union carpenter and he is like adamant about, he's a huge supporter of Val Hoyle. So I want to say like that there's, there's, you have to look, you have to, as a voter, as a, as a, I'm reaching out to the audience by saying this, you have to look into who's running and what what their paths are you know and that kind of thing and i think that you know i think she's a great candidate for for that because i think in a rural community you're going to run into that a lot where people like don't want to go straight into college now that being said i'm i'm constantly amazed i've met so many people in oregon over the years as a barber that i wouldn't expect to have gone to college who did you know so there's a lot of college graduates out out in the surrounding areas i'm sure Absolutely. And um, none of what I'm saying is, is to dissuade anybody from going to college, no, either, just because they live in a rural community. Um, there are some really visionary things that have been happening. So for instance, in the Oak Ridge area, um, I'm on the Chamber of Commerce and um, Lane Workforce Development was um, putting together a grant to help out with what would look like a cooperative for wood products industry partners in our industrial park. And part of that would have a workforce training center for carpentry and other wood-based industry. Um, as you know, forestry is one of our primary uh, industries in, in the upper part of the Willamette Basin there. Um, and so it makes sense that we would be able to uh, you know, harvest um, wood that's already on the ground or when they're doing um, removing fuels from the area and some of that wood could be brought to um, the industrial park and reused or repurposed for different things, that that could be part of a workforce development training program as well. Yeah, that's good. There's a lot of opportunities for, you know, choice when it comes to where you're going to choose to point your career. Uh, my next question, my ne the next area is uh, emergency medical services. So the three areas we're going to talk about today, uh, emergency medical services, healthcare, and public safety. Uh, let's start with the medical 
emergency medical services. I mentioned before that we once again had evacuations due to wildfire in your area. And I think we already covered this, but my question was, uh, this has kind of become the norm, unfortunately. And one of the silver linings is seeing how communities come together, regardless of political beliefs. My question was, what has been your experience with this? We kind of covered that, but do you have anything that kind of sticks out uh, just like a any little experience that you had that where you saw people that you know just there's no way that they normally would have been together to put their help in each other. I know that when it snowed here, there was a dude driving down the road uh, plowing people's driveways, like, and he didn't care. He was like, next, <laughs> you know, you know. but did you see any kind of things like that? Well, I mean, we have dealt with floods and we've dealt with snowmageddon sure yeah <laughs> a, cu- a couple years ago where highway 58 was completely cut off you couldn't get in you couldn't get out amtrak was stuck in our town for a while wow um we didn't have access to gas or electricity and really it it didn't matter um again i just go back to what i had said earlier our unsung heroes are the people who live in our communities yeah um they all rose up to help each other out. And I think that particular issue with Snowmageddon was really where that idea of more emergency preparedness came from. Um, There were a lot of folks that came together, including myself, who met up at the the local police or the fire department and talked a little bit about, you know, emergency planning and also at that point, since the disaster had already happened, we came together daily to discuss what are we going to prioritize for today? Um, who needs resources? How are we going to prioritize where those resources go? And who do we need to help first? And so I think there were a ton of lessons learned from that. And that manifested in a very seamless evacuation process this time around. I guess, unfortunately, it's just the reality that we're facing in this changing world is that we can't take anything for granted that, that nothing's guaranteed. It's like, you know, it's like nine 11 taught us that when it came to just our safety and security in the world, you know, and then moving forward with climate change, we're seeing, you know, that it's like, Oh my gosh. And, well, and, and think and, about and, it. Like you, and take population. A, you take a risk when you decide to live sure. outside the urban center, right? Especially in the case of, you know, Oak Ridge or McKinsey areas, you're living out, right next to the national forest. And wildfire is a real thing. Snow, flooding, those are real risks. And so we have to be prepared for those things. And there, there is a, a kind of a level of like kind of moxie and savviness that comes along with making that choice and understanding what that risk is all about. And so I think with that, that's where you do see, you call them the unsung heroes, but the people who are willing to for, for lack of better terms, like pull up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like make things work. So the next area, you know, um, we kind of, again, talked about this as well. I'd like to discuss how it's vital to expand emergency communications in rural areas as they may at times be forced to shut off power and may have spotty at best mobile phone service. What are some areas of emergency communications that you'd like the community to know more about? And what are your concerns? I think we mentioned it too on that, you know, you have to go door to door because when you don't have power or you don't have service, how are you even going to get the word out? Yeah, I think we covered a little bit of that on the evacuation talk, but um You know, I I also want to just give a shout out to Heather Buck because she has been working on uh, looped towers so that instead of having like a line of towers, if one tower goes out, then every tower behind it goes out and you don't have communications in that area anymore. You have looped communication 
so that if one tower goes out, it's okay because that communication will just skip that tower and then the signal would go to the next tower and it would just continue around in a loop so that it reached all the towers within the communication area. Wow. And so we're looking at adding more communications towers in order to help that system come to fruition. Um, and then one of the things that I was thinking about today was we have uh, wood stoves that are out of compliance with um, air quality. And so Oak Ridge Air has been changing out those stoves for people. Well, what would happen if we had some solar backup units on individual homes because you would have to have like a humongous like two football stadiums full of solar panels in order to have a whole community lit sure. up, right? But if folks were incentivized at a state level prioritizing those rural areas where it's most likely to have electricity shut down to get a solar unit installed for backup. I think that's something that the state could get behind. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that'd be great to hear on a state level. I know that the, it's being called the inflation reduction act that doesn't really help for inflation right away, but you know, but there's a lot of climate change stuff in there like that, like solar panels and things like that. But I'd like to see more of that on a state level for sure. And that, that bolsters, uh, you know, not only emergency communications, but when we're talking about these upgrades in infrastructure, sure. it's helping our schools, it's helping our businesses, and it's helping us to better network both within our communities and then outside of our communities as well. I'm just really optimistic that we're going to see, you know, an expansion in the quality of batteries in the next like five to 10 years and just different means of, of power. And so we'll see. I mean, I know that as far as cell phone service, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go too much into the weeds on this, but like the uh, Elon Musk and Starlink, I think it's called, where he's like working with T-Mobile, where they're trying to get like basically satellite phone coverage to everyone in the planet, basically, so that for rural areas that are in these little dead zones, that you know that could be really promising. I mean, I'm sure it comes at a cost, but still, I mean, if you can get service, then there's probably no cost that's too expensive. You know, if you're willing, I know that when cell phones started my dad 25 cents a minute he still was like i gotta have that in the car it's amazing because we he would drive up i-5 constantly from salem to portland and back so i i think um you also have to think about that the you know the solutions to things like um emergency communications and broadband communications being better or being more improved especially in light of climate disasters um these improvements are going to come about over time. And while there's some short-term things we can do, like installing more towers, uh, creating better looped systems, um, we've also heard a lot of talk about burying conduit underneath the surface of, right. of the ground or underneath asphalt in the roadways. And that's extremely expensive. But when we go to um, reconstruct a road that we can do uh, piecemeal um, and, and add those upgrades as we go along with the intent over time that we will have an upgraded system as we move forward. Right. And I'll tell you, like the climate issue isn't getting any better. So no. we have to plan to move forward incrementally um, and address the climate issue, but it's not going to be solved all at once. And no, like you said, there's... No, exactly. You have to stop poo-pooing things that don't get it all solved and, all and, at once. And, you know, and people are like, how are we going to pay for it? And yes, it's a concern, but... I mean, it's some of the stuff is not an option. I mean, some of the stuff we have to do and we don't have time to wait, you know. 
So let's move on to healthcare. In October, I'll be doing a podcast with a representative from uh, Healthcare for All Oregon. Do you support the idea of Medicare for All on a federal level? And do you think, if, if not federally, that it's feasible to pursue on a state level? Um, I support healthcare for all, uh, but I do think that whether it's on a federal or a state level, that we do need to have a roadmap to figure out what that's going to mean fiscally. Um, I've heard, you know, I've been talking a lot with the healthcare for all folks, and um, I've heard some of the ideas around funding would would be derived from the uh, lack of insurance companies serving as middlemen um, that the state would be able to. Um, negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies directly for medications in order to keep the costs down, and that there wouldn't be the payouts going to insurance companies that they currently receive when doctors bill them for services, which would also bring the cost of services down as well. So those are some of the ideas that I'm hearing. Um, I have yet to see like a solid roadmap, but my understanding also is that the measure that's coming up around the healthcare access for all is meant to address that access to healthcare as a right for all Oregonians, um, and that that would prioritize the state moving forward toward ensuring that that can happen sometime in the future. Right. It's like changing the wording. That's going to be a really interesting episode. That's going to be October 8th. And there's there's a lot that I want to ask about. I've, I've always kind of wrapped – I can't wrap my head around how it would look. So like say that you have healthcare through your employer – Right now, if it switches to a completely 100% government-funded model, now the doctors are not government doctors. That's just the mandated taxes that pay for the service, so that they would get compensated by the government. But then, no, the employers would then have to give you a pay increase, you know, because they're not going to be doing it. Like the employer would not be paying for your insurance anymore. You would be paying it through taxes. So it'll be interesting to see how that when that time comes. I'm not asking. It's not a question. I mean, it's just. It's just. I don't know. And that's the challenge that, that everybody's ran into. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of Medicare for All, but my business is really simple because it's a barbershop. There's like a little bit of over, you know what I mean? It's a, and, and so it's pretty simple. You know, once you got your clippers and your scissors and your combs and your disinfectant, you're pretty much ready to rock. So it's just a little bit different. And, and then on that note, and then I don't have health insurance because <laughs> so, I'm an independent contractor. So, which is another reason that I'm a huge supporter of this. Uh, a lot of times people in the independent contract or gig work or whatever you want to call it, uh, those people get forgotten. I can't believe that I even was able to be eligible for unemployment during the COVID uh, quarantine. You know, that that was because of Ron Wyden too, by the way, that Ron Wyden in the 11th hour was like, we got to make sure that we cover these people. But okay, so we got a lot to talk about. So we're going to move on. This is going to be kind of lengthy, so I'm going to get through it, but uh, we're going to talk about public safety and policing. One area that I've been extremely vocal about in the in the area of public safety and policing is de-escalation and the need for advanced de-escalation training. What we just saw on our local news in Cottage Grove looked like a classic case of excessive force, and the citizens are alarmed, to say the least. I'd like to briefly talk about your opponent, Charles Conrad, who's a former Springfield police officer who in 2012 was the arresting officer in an incident where a 62-year-old homeless deaf man was taken to the ground so forcefully that there were major injuries that required multiple surgeries. The man sued the department, and in 2015, the case was settled in the tune of $450,000. Once again, like there's a ton of these cases. 
So I'm going to read an article from the Register Guard real quick about the story. This was uh, an article from February 24th, 2015. The city of Springfield will pay $450,000 to settle a lawsuit filed by a deaf man who was injured when police took him into custody in 2012 for a psychiatric evaluation. City manager Gino, Gino Grimaldi signed the settlement agreement with Raymond Toll, Toll's representatives on Monday, bringing a costly end to litigation filed by Toll last April. Toll, 62 years old, suffered serious leg and knee injuries when Springfield police officer Charles Conrad forced him to the ground in the parking lot of an auto parts store in the 2900 block of Main Street on September 29, 2012. Conrad had handcuffed Toll, who was homeless at the time, a short time earlier after receiving information from an employee of the shop that Toll was causing a scene in the business and was possibly suicidal. Doctors at the hospital diagnosed Toll with a right knee and leg injuries that required multiple surgeries and rehabilitation. The injuries included two bone fractures, a dislocated knee, and complete tears of three ligaments, according to the lawsuit. Now, that was an article from 2015. Seems a little questionable to move this man uh, to a seat in Salem, to reward him with a seat in Salem. I've been extremely vocal about seeing de-escalation efforts by our local police department, which I spoke to Springfield Police Chief Shearer about on the podcast, and he assured me that policy changes have been and are continuing to be made. My question for you is, what can be done at the state level to hold accountable police officers involved in these incidents that later require large legal settlements? Well, I think, first of all, like if you were to do or to look at the public review on that um, and to look at the audit on many of the cases... When the local uh, DA or Lane County is the investigator on these instead of having an outside agency, so like an agency that would then do the investigation that is outside of uh, the local jurisdiction um, so that that agency is um, more objective instead of being subjective, um, can provide uh, better accountability, I think, for how to move forward in in um, ch making change at the right. Department I mean, level. the police policing the police has not worked. Period. Like right. that's what we've been seeing, and you know, there's a lot of people that are super frustrated. And I mean, this Cottage Grove thing is going to be huge news because there's video. There's a lot of lengthy video and a lot of eyewitnesses. Where I don't know if you saw the clip yet. I know that there's been a lot going on. But, I mean, this man who, granted, the man had like a sword or something. I mean, it was not a good scene. But that doesn't mean that after someone's detained that you get to just demolish them or beat them or punch them or repeatedly when they were, you know. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, I think we do have like some opportunities, though. Um, my running mate, Ashley Pelton, who's running for the Senate District 6, has been working with legislation. The acronym is LEAD which is Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. Um, and that program um, helps the police and is um, it, it also engages the police, right, at the point where they connect with the perpetrator. And instead of just processing that person through the criminal justice system right away and, like, you know, clogging up the caseloads that most of the time don't even get processed. So you have that criminal back out on the streets right away again. Right. Um, you now, the, the officer can choose to have this person go through a diversion program um, where they would go into social services and follow through with this program um, to help them make better choices and get back on track. Now, if they, so you have this accountability at the police level, then you have the accountability at the individual level, right? So 
that person now has to be responsible for the choices they're making about their behavior. And if they decide not to follow up with that program, then they go back into the caseload process. So then you are also holding the DA accountable for moving this person through a process that can actually maybe change that person's life um, or they would have to go through the punishment that they would have had to go through in the first place. Right. So I have a. I want to ask you, would you entertain the idea of a push for a potential reallocation of funding from police to mental health specialists? Now, I did not say defund the police. <laughs> That's the same thing. No. Uh, I was going to say that. That sounds like defunding the police, and I do not support I just think that it's important for people to have this conversation, though. So now it's kind of like critical race theory, which we could be here for days talking about that, too. But with the defund the police thing, there's yes, there is people that do want that. But those people are not in the leadership of the Democratic Party. They're just not, you know. And so there is talk about uh, a reallocation of funds. And that's something that I support. And I know that you're not saying that now. Now, cahoots, which I've talked at length about on this podcast, but cahoots working alongside the police is something that I'm super, I think is incredible. Uh, and there was something that we talked a little bit off air. Maybe you can give me a little more details on this. But Oregon did just receive news from the White House that cahoots will be reimbursed through Medicaid as part of the American Rescue Plan. 85% match over the pa- the next three years for Medicaid recipients. So this is huge because it sets a model for the rest of the country to follow suit. But I think the way that you had told me off air is that this is actually for Cahoots' funding. So for their operations cost, is that correct? Yes. So it's the, so fresh. The, the so funding the funding would go toward expanding those social uh, trauma and de-escalation services by social services providers. Right. The problem that I understand that exists in Lane County specifically is that we don't have enough current capacity at the social services level to receive the funding to then in turn provide the services necessary. So we're going to have to work the state is going to have to work with our congressional members and our local communities to figure out how we're going to be able to expand that capacity using the funding that's coming in. Right. And I just want to say, you know, like our police officers, they're doing so much right now. And the culture of policing is really strongly based in fear. Because you never know if someone's got a weapon. You never know if someone is going to kill you. And so when you come at a situation from that perspective, you're not coming at it from a compassionate perspective. And so that's where social services can step in to help with de-escalation where needed for nonviolent crime offenders and help the police be able to focus back on preventing and um, stopping violent crimes from happening, um, which creates more effectiveness at a policing level. um, And it also allows more people to get access to mental health care and behavioral health services that they need. Yeah, I mean, mental health is just the big issue, you know, that it's so widespread in so many different areas of life. I don't, I don't trust anybody that doesn't struggle with some form of mental health issue because I seriously say that a lot and I mean it because at this point it's like, how could you watch the news? How could you, you know, know what's happening in our world and just be totally fine all the time? Well, let's talk about that for a second. If you are an emergency services staff person, if you are a police person or a fire person and I'll demonstrate this through the rule perspective. 
We don't have the financial resources, nor do we have the housing to support having people come in and get jobs with us. We've had open, we've had open uh, jobs, full-time jobs for over a year right. in some of our communities that we can't fill because we don't have uh, the housing to support them coming into our community. And no one wants to be driving in from an urban area every day to go to work. Sure. Yeah. So that lack of capacity is really weighing hard mentally on the people who are currently in those kinds of positions. Imagine having to do twice the job that you would have to do normally as an emergency driver of an ambulance right. or all of the hundreds of calls that come in. And as a police officer, you're now having to triage all those calls that are coming in and never really knowing really which ones are the most dangerous ones. So there's, I think that, you know, there's a lot of um, things at play here. There's a lot of layers to kind of peel back. And when we talk about mental health care, it's not just for homeless people or people that right. are on the streets. We're talking about mental health care and the stigma behind it that we need to start removing for all of us. Yeah, I've been listening to, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I've been listening to Chris Cuomo's podcast, which is I actually really recommend. Uh, he talks about free agents and how there's people that are, you know, not de Democrat, not Republican. They're in the middle. And he's talking about how we can bridge the divide. And I think a lot of people are, you know, and I mean, I, I think that there's something about like the rural voices matter. There's something in there that's about that. That's about like, it doesn't matter what your belief system is. It's like your voice matters, you know, and you have to be heard. And I think that with mental health, that's the number one thing is, is that people need to feel validated and need to feel heard. And sometimes it's in their own house, you know, you know, and their own relationships. And I think it starts with us individually. A lot of times that we have to wake up and give ourselves positive affirmations. It's taken me a long time to get there because I've struggled still with uh, suicidal ideology or ide I don't know the word. <laughs> I, uh, ideation. Well, and I think you know? there's also health care that can be delivered yeah. um, that doesn't necessarily require somebody driving like an hour to get into town to go have an appointment. Uh, telehealth has become yeah. more popular since the COVID pandemic. And we are seeing a lot of behavioral health now that is covered under some insurance policies that doesn't require someone to walk into an office in order to sit down in a chair and, and be able to have those conversations. And so I think that creating access to different ways to receive health care is also a, a you know, it's it's a critical point that we need to make with insurance companies. I think the telehealth thing is huge because it saves a lot of money, first of all, from both sides, you know, where even even the building, you know, you know, because people can do that from home, like the, the provider. We don't even have healthcare centers in so many of our rural yeah, communities. Right. I mean, I got bit by a dog, passed out and then drove to an urgent care during the COVID pandemic. Oh my gosh. They wouldn't let me in because they were only seeing COVID patients. Then I went to Springfield and I sat for two hours. And by the time I got up to the front, they told me there was no personnel that could deal with the issue that I had. They didn't have any qualified people there and that I would need to go sit in the emergency room all day long. And so at that point, I just called my regular primary care and he like squeezed me in on a lunch hour. But that was, you know, five or six hours of my life I'll never get back again sure. simply because I couldn't access the care I needed to take care of business. This is the difficult thing that, you know, like I can hear my dad's voice. My dad's really conservative <laughs> and I can hear my dad's voice where he'd be like, yep, this is why government's the problem. And it's like, that's just not in reality, though. It's like, what do you do then? <laughs> like, what, what's the option? What's the other alternative? Anyway, I, I could go off on that. But yeah, I can. I mean, it, it, it's 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 frustrating. So I got one more thing I want to talk about. 
uh, actually a couple, but, <laughs> but, uh, one thing is I think that we, for the first time in a long time, have a pretty exciting looking, uh, governor's race. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, especially because of the district that you represent and what your campaign's all about. I think that you've probably been hearing a lot of people say like, I'm, I'm all on board with Betsy, you know, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I don't want to mock the voice, but, uh, it's pretty interesting. We've got Betsy Johnson, who's the independent, Tina Kotek, the Democrat, and Christine Drazen is the Republican. I have two questions, and you can go anywhere you want with these, but is the two-party system broken? <laughs> and what are you hearing about this race from constituents in your area from both sides of the aisle? Oh, my goodness. You just had to ask this question, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I will I would definitely say I'm, I'm on board with a train that says that the two-party system is broken. Sure. I believe that we need more choices, and I am pretty excited about uh, ranked choice voting and seeing what's going to come out of Alaska. Me too. And um, I think that that's also going to give more people an opportunity to run for a race. Uh, we know that there's exorbitant amounts of money that are being spent on campaigns. Um, I know that that, for me, was a huge turnoff when all of that money is going into television commercials and, you know, things that go mailed out and end up in people's garbage cans, sure. you know. Um, and so th those things are really frustrating to me when that money could be put to a lot better use. Um, and I, I think that that perspective is something I've heard for sure from people. They're, they're kind of rolling their eyes and thinking how ridiculous this race is uh, because of the amount of money that is being raised to deliver on marketing materials. Well, right? that could be said for, for Betsy Johnson where she's got Phil Knight in her pocket, you know, but I mean, I think that her rise though is I think there's it demonstrates yeah. it demonstrates that we do have a broken two-party system. Absolutely. And it demonstrates that people want to have more choice. Absolutely, and that's something that I I'm my dad was he's told me he's like I'm voting for her and I'm like I think that's great. And then he said I'm going to get a yard sign some of my neighbors who my dad is extremely conservative, right? So he's like my neighbors I, I think they're not going to be happy and I'm like what does that tell you? That there, that we need to allow people to be themselves, to like believe what they want. I don't. I would never damage someone's yard sign, or I would never. I mean, I'm not going to say that I wouldn't make a comment because I can't help myself sometimes, and I have strong opinions. And I, I, there's, I don't have a problem with Republicans. I just have a problem with Donald Trump. You know, at this point, at this point, you know, and and unfortunately, the on the on the national level, the Republican Party is Donald Trump. There's no two ways about it. And so that that's a problem. Now, I probably will be voting for Tina Kotek because I think that in this election, the number one most important thing is a woman's right to choose. And I think that Betsy Johnson's not tough enough on climate, you know, and I think there's I don't know. I, part of me, though, is like, you know, I'm just tired of hearing the criticisms like, the you know, the Kate Brown hate. And so sometimes I, I think that maybe change in direction might be a decent thing. I, but I mean, I'm a Democrat, so... I think if nothing else that this race actually is spurring a little bit of a change in direction yeah. and instead of like inferring that that only means party. I think that it's also changing how legislators work together. Yeah. It's changing where we reach out to our constituents. So for instance, uh, last week I went to a farm bureau annual meeting and it was pretty dominated by Republican culture. Their keynote speaker was, Alex Scarlatos. Um, and I sat at a table with the HD12 Republican candidate and had a great conversation. 
had a great conversation, had a wonderful conversation with a Republican woman who was sitting across from me, who was really worried about a woman's right to choose. Um, We were all worried about a local economy and what it meant for our small farmers. And so we just found a lot of common ground on things. Um, Regardless of the party hat that I had on, there was a lot to talk about that we all wanted to work together on. Yeah. And it was really amazing, you know, getting business cards and, you know, just talking to people and people saying that, well, you know, if you're elected, we still want to work with you. And yeah. I said, that's why I'm here. Exactly. That's- I'm going to be here on your ground. I'm going to meet you on your turf. And I want to hear what you have to say. Because again, I go back to what I said at the beginning of this interview. I'm not here to speak for people. I'm I'm here to act as a conduit for people to have their own voices. Yeah. And I might not always agree with what everybody in my you know constituency is saying, but I at least have to listen and consider and bring those notes up to the policymakers. Yeah, for sure. I just it's really interesting this this race. And so uh we're gonna we're in the final lap at this point. I mean it's it's what, two months at this point before this election. And I'm going to Washington D.C. on election night, which oh is pretty, goodness. which is pretty wild. So depending on what happens, I may or may not storm the Capitol the next day. Don't uh, do that. I'm not going. No, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm not expecting there to be chaos, but it's unrelated. But we will be there in Washington D.C. And so uh, look forward to that. That the Spent the Rent podcast will be in Washington D.C. I'm going to drop a bunch of random reels. I'm going to try to make some funny stuff for you guys. Uh, you know, I think I just one last area, and then we're going to get out of here. Uh, you know, our state has so many issues that everyday Oregonians face. Homelessness, food insecurity, economic uncertainty, and so much more. As a closing thought, what would you like to tell voters who struggle with the reality and or threat of houselessness, food insecurity, and economic uncertainty? Well, I think that we have to come together, right? Those are not just issues that are indicative of one party or another party. Um, and so moving across the party lines, coming together and not having these divisive conversations about, oh, well, if we have health care for all, then we're not going to be able to financially support that on the conservative side. Or, hey, it's a, it's, we should all have like a right to health care and no matter what, we need to fund it. We need to find like where that, that's, that ground is in the center to work together to find uh, solutions. And there are solutions out there. And then I would also say that again, and I go back to what I said earlier, we're not going to fix every problem immediately. And there's a lot of incremental solutions that we can work on. With houselessness, there's a lot of middle ground housing that we can embrace and begin to look at how we implement that through different communities. And it's going to look different in the rural areas that it's going to look in urban areas. Absolutely. And so we need our county to understand that policies around land use and around buildings, ADUs, things like that, that could be utilized uh, to provide some of those incremental housing solutions, they might have to look different when we're looking to rural communities. Um, food security, uh, what I want to say is our state needs to look at policies that are hurting our, our farming communities um, and understand that we need business incentives and we need good stewardship incentives that don't uh, punish farmers who are already doing really good things to take care of our land, to take care of our water, and that we want to reward those folks. And there's a lot of small things you can do, like multi-year um, inspection permits, so that we don't have to pay every year to have an inspector come out and ensure that we're doing the right thing. Um, but but to allow for um, 
some kind of an incentive to, to help farmers stay uh, on board with practicing good stewardship um, and then relieving some of the financial burden for folks. Um, so I think there's just a, there's a lot of different things that we could be doing and there are solutions out there. And just because one size doesn't fit all, we just have to keep peeling back the layers and be okay with incremental um, solutions as we move forward. As a closing thought, what would you like to tell voters? Uh, actually, no. Uh, what would you like to tell voters of your district specifically as a closing thought? Just direct to the voter. Um, I want to say follow the money. Find out who your candidates are. Do some research on the people that you vote for. I absolutely support everyone coming out, making sure that they get out and do the vote. But take a little bit of time to get to know who the candidates are. You can go to Orstar. You can look at how campaigns are being funded. Um, think about scale. Are they being funded by individuals? Or are they being funded by large industries? Are they being funded by corporations? The money is going to show who is going to have the biggest voice in legislature. So please do keep that in mind when you're voting. Yeah, Orstar is huge. How you can I love that you said that because... You know, we need to overturn Citizens United because, which is such a <laughs> terrible name title, but it's basically where corporations are people, and so therefore their their vote and their voice is their money is basically their voice. And oh my gosh! And you can find Orstar at OregonVotes.org on yeah. the Secretary of State website. Yeah, so. it, yeah, that's great because it, it it does it shows exactly who's funding whose campaign. I mean, you, if for anyone listening, go look at who's funding your campaign versus your opponent, and I think that my audience will be able to come to a decision themselves. So Michelle Emmons, candidate for Oregon State Representative in House District 12. It is an honor to have you in person. This is a new thing to be able to do these back in person because, you know, COVID, uh, we we started doing it online. And what an incredible advancement in technology that we were able to do that. I've been trying to do that for decades, but they finally, you know, the powers that be gave us the little crumbs to do it so that we can make our own little news. Uh, not, you know, I, I don't, my show is not, not journalism, so to speak. It's supposed to be conversations to just raise awareness so that people can kind of like dig and find out their own stuff. But I definitely appreciate everybody for tuning in, for watching, for listening. Please subscribe where you, wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll keep uh, getting notified when new ones drop. Just so you know, uh, I've been doing a lot more Friday nights at seven. And then if it's on, if it's not Friday night, it's going to be like uh, Saturday morning at like 10 AM is the times that I'd go live, but they're always going to be available forever. Uh, after the fact in both audio and video on my website, which is strpod.com. So yeah, Michelle Emmons, thank you so much. You are very welcome. And I just want to do a quick shout out to, uh, the folks that are listening. Make sure you check me out at Emmons you can also find me on social media channels at Emmons for Oregon or Oregon Dirt Road Democrat. Uh, hope to find you guys out there. Please come out, canvas, fill out the feedback form online. Let me know what you think the most important issues are that we should be working on in our district. I want to take your voices to the legislature. So the, once again, that website is EmmonsforOregon.org. Michelle Emmons, thank you so much. And we're going to end this with a song. This is a song I chose. It's by me, Patty Rose. This is the song, All Hands on Deck. Stress and the guilt, anxiety, constantly feel like it's burying me. Smooth sailing sobriety does not exist. What's carrying me is the weight of my support system, my foundation, my place to rest, my anguish. It's time that I relinquish all power over fighting back. There we were all.
To the left, I see the. Re-